0: California, and Texas, and New York, and we're going to South Dakota, and Oregon, and Washington, and Michigan, and then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Yeah! Break the glass. It's Election Shock Therapy. Hey, everybody. Uh, this is Chris Moore. And uh, obviously, anytime uh, there is a major military incursion by two world powers, um, we're going to podcast. And so uh, I'm here in uh at Bethel University with the snow falling around me and I'm joined by two of my estimable colleagues um guys introduce yourselves uh
1: hi Matt Kuka
2: and I'm Mitchell Crumb and I'm down here in South Carolina where it's too hot to be outside um and it's uh yeah basically uncomfortable it's too hot to be outside yeah
0: it's like in the mid to high 80s so uh, it's nine degrees here Mitch (laughs) and we fought for all nine of them (laughs) yes we did i'm just that's, that's just where we are all right Um, if you, uh, we're a little bit less, um, uh, ebullient than we might normally be, uh, because, uh, we're faced with something that frankly is not something that none of us hoped to talk about. Uh, Matt, you were mentioning that a year ago or so you and I did a little podcast where we looked at sort of around the world, international relations, and we suggested that there was sort of a medium range chance that Vladimir Putin would, uh, take action in, uh, Eastern Ukraine. And mm-hmm. that, that, uh, that uh, chance has come to pass. And so um, as a, we're recording this on Thursday at 513 Central Standard Time, uh, lots of things will change, possibly even by the time you hear this. But the most recent news announced by uh, Ukrainian President uh, Zelensky is that 137 Ukrainian soldiers have been killed as a result of a Russian incursion, which is taking place on several fronts uh, on the north, south, and east of Ukraine. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit in this podcast. We're going to keep this relatively brief and we're going to keep it relatively high level. So if you're the kind of person who is just tuning into this and wondering, how did we get here? What's happening? Who's to blame? Those kinds of questions. This is going to be a useful podcast for you. So we're going to talk first about how we got here, uh, how we got to this conflict in the format that it's existing in now, what Russia is specifically doing, what the United States and some of its allies are doing in response, and a little bit—we're not very good at speculating, and I'm terrible at predicting—but what could happen next? So, uh, gentlemen, uh, this is uh, this is one of those questions. It's 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 a, this is a complicated story. It's, it's hard to just launch into a narrative between uh, neighboring countries that in some ways stretches back hundreds, if not thousands of years. Um, but we had to start somewhere. And for the purposes of international politics, it probably makes sense to start with uh, the creation of the Soviet Union. And now the reason I want to do that is not because I want to go back 100 years, but because the leaders that are relevant to this conversation have gone back 100 years. And so when the Soviet Union was created and when Russia um, uh, um, aggrandized to uh, absorb several uh, neighboring um, principalities and various kinds of of political units to form the Soviet Union, um, they didn't necessarily keep those original constructions intact. Uh, Lenin, by design... Uh, broke up some of the internal uh, divisions, natural divisions between uh, ethnic groups, between linguistic groups, and um, and created new divisions inside the Soviet Union. And that was basically to try to undermine other kinds of power centers as the Soviets were seizing control. I'm not the only person who's observed this. Somebody else who's observed this is one Vladimir Putin, uh, and he has drawn back for deep criticism what he calls the Bolshevik communist creation of the Soviet Union and uh, the essentially unfair way it victimized Russia. And this is a really interesting turn, right? Because in the West, we tend to think of um, Putin as sort of wistful for the, uh, the dominant era of the Soviet Union. And he's, he is in terms of the power the Soviet Union exerted. But he doesn't necessarily support the ways that the, the Soviets managed uh, their country, and he is, he is by far, far more nationalist. And so he said, and I'm going to read two, uh, um, two sections from the speech he gave yesterday, justifying Russian incursion into Ukraine. He says this. I would like this is, this is translated, obviously, from Russian. I'd like to emphasize again that Ukraine is not just a neighboring country for us. It is an inalienable part of our own history, culture, and spiritual space. These are our comrades those dearest to us, not only colleagues, friends, and people who once served together, but also relatives, people bound by blood, by family ties. And you can, uh, as I listen to that, I'm, I'm picking up buzzwords. I want to be careful here because obviously he said this in Russian and I'm reading it in English and I'm importing some certain uh, meanings from the English here. But he's talking about blood and spiritual space and culture. And he's essentially making the case that Ukraine as it exists today contains uh, portions which are fundamentally Russian. Uh, much to a lot of Ukrainians' ire, he, in other speeches, has referred to Ukrainians, as well as Belarusians and others, as little Russians, which they find to be a pejorative term. But this is sort of this sort of, uh, broader sense of, uh, it's, it's a more extreme version of when America calls Canada its hat, right? Um, these are really us. We're really the same kind of thing here, uh, united by culture, if not by political entity. Uh, Putin goes on, and this is the last section I'm going to read. So I will start with the fact that modern Ukraine was entirely created by Russia, or to be more precise, by Bolshevik communist Russia. This process started practically right after the 1917 revolution, and Lenin and his associates did it in a way that was extremely harsh on Russia, by separating, severing, what is historically Russian land. Nobody asked the millions of people living there what they thought. Now, that's true, is, is so far as it goes. In 1917, Lenin did not conduct public opinion polls about the internal provincial divisions inside the Soviet Union, mostly because those things didn't matter all that much. The Soviets centralized their government so much that these were largely just administrative units um, without real cultural significance per se. But when the Soviet Union broke apart in 1991 and the Cold War ended, or so we thought, um, those those divisions became quite meaningful, right? Uh, Ukraine uh, preserved its territorial uh, borders based on those Lenin-created 1917 divisions. And it does roughly line up with a traditional understanding of the space that Ukraine has occupied uh, within Europe, right? Um, That said, in Eastern Ukraine, the predominant language spoken in the home, especially in the Far Eastern, is Russian. And uh, the country becomes more uh, Russian-speaking as you move east. And so there is this cultural commonality that that is present, and we should acknowledge that. Now, in 1991, when the Soviet Union broke apart, Russia was in no position to make any kind of claim to any of its neighboring partners. But Putin himself, who was not in power at that time, uh, was deeply aggrieved by what he saw as sort of this, this undercutting, this severing of Russia. And he's talked about this repeatedly over the last couple of decades that he's been in power. And so this is clearly a, a nationalist point of grievance for him, that Russian uh, populations in Moldova and Georgia and, and Crimea and, 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 in, and in Ukraine, in Donetsk and Luhansk and elsewhere, um, should have been retained as part of Russia. And it was Russian weakness and the exploitation of Russian weakness by the West that has prevented this, uh, prevented uh, sort of the um, the hobbling of the Russian state. Um so flash forward a little bit about, about, about a decade from 1991 and 1999, Putin comes to power. Um, and I'm not going to review the entire Putin, uh, um, uh, reign here the last 24 years, but, um, we were sort of bamboozled in the West by who Putin was. He, um, he, We initially thought that he was essentially a more boring, staid version of Boris Yeltsin, a uh, market reformist. Um, Yes, he was former KGB, but he seemed like he was uh, very much interested in free market business opportunities, and Russia was headed towards democracy. It wasn't this great. And relatively quickly on, we saw Putin utilized uh, uh, conflict inside Russia, particularly at its borders, to aggregate power to himself. He did this um, in Chechnya by running the counterterrorism campaign, which was serendipitous for Putin because the 9-11 attacks happened inside the United States. And so he found that the United States very willing to work with him on what essentially we understood as counterterrorism operations against uh, Islamic extremists. But he saw it as a way of consolidating power at Russia's borders. That includes um, Ukraine. Ukraine. And so, um, Mitch, at this point, I think I want to fold in the perspective from the Ukrainians. And uh, you've talked a little, you've researched more deeply a little bit about some of the pro-democracy revolutions that have happened around uh, the era of the Arab Spring, and specifically the Orange Revolution, which bears in Ukraine. So can you tell us a little bit about the Orange Revolution?
2: Sure. So in <clears throat> in 2004, um, Ukraine had uh, pretty fiercely contested election, um, between two candidates, one, um, and I'm not going to try to pronounce names cause I'll butcher them. Um, but this is uh, the
0: Yanukovych and Yukashenko election, correct? Yes, yeah. Okay. Yes,
2: yes. Um, and basically, um, the, the contest was between, um, 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 you know, I, I, I Yanukovych was basically pro-Russian and, um, uh, and the, um, um,
0: <laughs> uh, Yukashenko. Um, it, it was the, the pro-Western, yeah.
2: pro-European union. Yes. Yes. Very pro-European yeah. union. So, and basically, basically what happened um, during this election, which was, which was very close. Um, it looked like a uh, 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 Yurkashenko, Yer- the uh, pro-Russian candidate um, was the victor. And it initially seemed that that was um, how this was going to come down, that there was going to be, um, you know, the platform um, of, of his party was essentially to try to, Um, basically move in a more Russian direction than European Union to ally the country more with Russia, um, to lean into the more Russian elements of Ukraine's culture, um, and make that, you know, essentially make Ukraine more, more eastern-leaning, make make it a more eastern-leaning Russian um, country. And this all looked fine um, until shortly after the election, there began to be accusations of rampant fraud um, in the election. And upon investigation, it became clear that those accusations were, in fact, absolutely correct. There was um, very clear evidence that there was widespread fraud in the election and it seems that some of that may have been helped by outside actors, um, and uh, you know, perhaps Russians. Uh, and essentially, uh, after that, after that election was shown to be fraudulent, um, seven million Ukrainians came to the capital in Kiev and occupied Independence Square. Um, this was an enormous um, protest, as you might imagine. It's one of the largest. You know, it's it, yeah, it was a massive, massive protest, and. Um, over a series of just a couple of uh, basically just a few weeks that after, after holding a vigil and demanding, um, um, sorry, I said 7 million, 2.3 million people. Um, uh, 2.3, uh, 2.3 million people held, held a vigil in Independence Square. Um, and this eventually pressed um, uh, 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 Yushchenko uh, to basically hold a new election. And in that election, which was uh, much more closely watched and uh, was determined to be um, fair, the uh, more pro-European uh, candidate won. And this was referred to as the Orange Revolution Um and essentially set the course of Ukraine towards a European um, and Western uh, trajectory and more, you know, becoming more closely allied with, uh, you know, Western countries and NATO, um, although not a member of NATO, but to become more allied with um, with those um, with those countries and, of course, with the United States as well. So that essentially set Ukraine on the path um, that it has been on since then, although Russia, um, after, you know, essentially failing to um, you know, have, have a government that was friendly to it um, established in Ukraine, then turned to other means, um, specifically the separatists um, in eastern Ukraine and, uh, and also Crimea, which I don't know, Chris, if you want to go back to talking about them. but
0: I do. So l- let me plug in here and we'll try to make this quick. So thanks, Mitch, for that. So as Mitch points out, so we really see kind of two roads diverging here, politically speaking. From 2004 on, Ukraine really begins to chart a path for itself in a pro-democratic direction. And if we're going to be like really nerdy political scientists about this, we actually do see Ukraine's aggregate democracy scores begin to climb at this point, exactly the same time as we see Russia's aggregate democracy scores decline at this point. So these are two former Soviet uh, entities that are really um, tracking in different directions in terms of authoritarianism and democracy. And this really comes to a head, but, but, but Ukraine's not out of the woods yet, by the way, right? There's a lot of rampant corruption in Ukraine, just like there's rampant corruption in Russia as well. Um, and we go through a couple of Ukrainian presidents after um, Victor uh, 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 yukashenko we have uh, Yulia Tymoshenko. Um, and then uh, actually we get another more pro-Russian um, leader, Yanukovych um, comes back and he actually wins. And so we have now a more pro-Russian leader uh, in the 2010s. In, in in Ukraine. And at that point, um, a piece of an agreement that Ukraine had been working on under these more pro-European Union leaders comes up to uh, Yanukovych to basically move Ukraine more towards the European Union. And he refuses to sign it under pressure from Russia. And there are massive protests. And this is in 2014. And this is what's known as the Maidan Revolution. And so, um, the um, uh, Yanukovych, uh, uh, Yanukovych essentially um, leaves uh, power at this time, f- uh, resigns, flees the country in response to this popular uprising for failing to sort of associate with um, with the European Union. But at the same time, Russia under Putin makes the first move in what is essentially this now almost decade long um, series of of, of 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 aggressions against crime against uh, ukraine and he moves into crimea now crimea we t- in 2014 it was part of ukraine it's still claimed by ukraine um no one rec- except for the exception of a couple of very small countries no one recognizes crimea as legitimately part of russia except for russia and it is a peninsula that extends into the black sea it is strategically very important. It contains the Sevastopol naval port, which is one of the most important uh, ports for the Russian Navy on the Black Sea. Um, and so, um, this was a this was a big deal in 2014, and it resulted in American and European sanctions against Russia when they seized it. Culturally important, as I mentioned, about 90% of the people in Crimea are ethnically Russian-speaking, and so. Um, this was an area where the people of Crimea, which is relatively sparsely populated, um, understood themselves to maybe be ethnically Russian, but part of Ukraine. But um, obviously this was a seizing of land that was Ukrainian land and, and, and aggregating it to, um, to Russia. At the same time in 2014 or w- within, within months thereafter, Russia began what was essentially a covert war of destabilization in Eastern Ukraine. Without identifying its own military, Russia began to filter military supplies and military personnel into the two easternmost provinces of Ukraine, uh, Luhansk and Donetsk. And this was known as uh, Putin's War of Little Green Men, based on on an offhand comment he made when when, uh, pressed by Western press of where these soldiers were coming from, basically Russia sort of put a hand in front of their mouth and said, oh, these couldn't possibly be Russian soldiers. They don't have any insignia. They don't have Russian insignia on them. But these were clearly Russian uh, soldiers who were operating in, um, uh, in eastern Ukraine and trying to uh, to destabilize the country. And that has basically been what has happened up until 2021. So we've had this ongoing low level, low intensity conflict uh, that's been happening for the last um, seven years or so. But starting late last fall, around November, leading into December, Russia began to um, place uh, uh, a much larger number of military forces on its borders with Ukraine. And um, at the time, Putin explicitly denied that there was going to be any offensive military operations. He said that these were typical military exercises, but there were all kinds of indications to suggest that that these were not just military exercises. And as we moved closer to 2022, as we moved into the era of the uh, Olympics, we saw um, uh, Putin meet with uh, Xi Jinping um, and come out of that with sort of, a, sort of a real statement on both sides of sort of um, uh, unities um, uh, of, of purpose and, um, and sort of a desire to increase cooperation. Some argued that this was sort of Putin getting a green light from uh, Xi to uh, extend UA- uh, operations, uh, in Eastern Ukraine, but more than that, it was um, it was seen as a sort of a test of the West. How far would Putin go? What would he do in this um, in this regard? Um, and so, would would he? You know, is was this just saber rattling, or was he planning to launch an actual military incursion? And, and now we know the answer. Um, Russia, uh, and so really quickly, what, what Russia has done is launch a three-pronged um, invasion of Ukraine. There are um, about 150,000 soldiers on the Ukrainian border. Uh, some of those soldiers are in Belarus those soldiers were sent to Belarus some months ago to help quell a popular uprising against the Belarusian president, Alexander Lukashenko, and they've never left. How convenient, right? And so um, there are Russian soldiers in, in Belarus, which is only about 100 miles from the capital of, of, of Ukraine in Kiev. Um, there are also Russian soldiers in Sevastopol, on the Black Sea, and Russia has moved a number of naval vessels into the Black Sea as well to support them, as well as significant Russian deployments uh, across the border from these two provinces in uh, in Donetsk and Luhansk. Now, what Putin has done as of the last couple of days is he recognized on Monday uh, Donetsk and Luhansk as uh, sovereign entities, no longer part of Ukraine, Um, and immediately helped set up essentially shadow governments for those two provinces who then promptly requested him to provide them military assistance. So, um, now he's, uh, he's obliging. And so he's called for what he calls a special military operation. Of course, no one would ever call something like this an invasion, but that's functionally what it is. Um, And he has moved uh, soldiers uh, into through the borders and there are active uh, fighting going on between Russian soldiers and Ukrainian soldiers. Um, And um, amongst other things um, one of the one of the notable landmarks I think that the Americans probably would would, would latch on to here is as of today uh, the ukrainians have announced that Russians have seized uh, the Chernobyl nuclear plant which is famous for its meltdown um, that occurred back in the um, early 80s um, it's um, not particularly strategically important but it is well known it's also very close to the Belarusian border so this is just uh, sort of a, 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 a move that's been made on, on the part of Russia. Wow. There's a lot more we could say, but let me pause there. That's what's happened on the part of Russia. Uh, guys, um, this is more extreme than I expected at this point. I thought if Putin might do anything militarily, it might be to formally move into Donetsk and Luhansk, but there are shelling and, and rockets uh, attacking Kiev at this time.
1: Uh, yeah, and I think, I mean, I think, Look, you know, back when we had a, a podcast at the beginning of the year, we were, we were, all of us were uncertain and willing to bet one way or the other um, what Putin would do. Uh, Chris, back when you and I talked last April, you said it was more likely than not that Putin would um, launch a significant military operation within Ukraine, although, um, although certainly it's gone far beyond um the Eastern provinces, right? Um, We see military action basically throughout the whole country. Um, You can find maps that show this to be the case. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to me, you know, I mean, it seems like his target now is not merely to um, grab and sort of bring into more fully into the Russian orbit pieces of Ukraine. He wants to do that with all of the Ukraine. He doesn't necessarily have to accomplish that with an all out, you know, total war that envelops the whole country. He is trying to basically capture, um, capture the leadership, uh, destabilize, and bring down basically the government as it currently exists. Maybe install um, a a, um, a a government that's allied specifically to him, uh, handpicked perhaps, um, so that he can bring Russia fully within. Excuse me, Ukraine fully within the Russian orbit, which was which was something that we had thought could be a possibility all along. And we thought maybe he would try to do that, um, without a significant military action, um, just sort of, sort of bluff his way into it. It's clear now that, um, that he is, he's not bluffing, right. Um, Mm -hmm. and he sees this as, um, as the best approach to ultimately destabilizing and bringing Ukraine within that orbit. And I think he has been sort of taking this sort of incremental approach, because as you pointed out, Chris, he has been sort of testing all along sort of um, the U S and sort of NATO response um, to basically each little step that he's taken. Um, And, and as it turns out um, the U S and NATO response has been, you know, relatively milquetoast, relatively weak. Um, And I think Putin is a, is a man who um, very much um, operates off of the basis of you know, of strength and weakness. Um, he detects that weakness um, and he plots his moves accordingly.
0: I, I'm inclined to say that up until now, I think I agree with you. So prior to the last couple of weeks, when all of a sudden the Biden administration sort of switched gears in terms of how it was talking about this, uh, Russian, Russian military buildup. Um, the 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 American and NATO response was relatively divided, and comparatively weak. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, the United States can afford, I'll put that in quotation marks, to be relatively uh, um, aggressive towards uh, towards Russia. Uh, we don't trade with them a lot, uh, and we don't really rely directly on petroleum from russia which is the biggest source of wealth that putin has used to maintain power germany and italy do and so germany and italy as major players in the european union and in nato have been relatively reticent up until recently uh, to cut off ties with with russia for fear of escalating home heating and gas prices right
1: which is entirely germany's fault by the way Given the energy policies that they pursue, basically, they say we're going to end all almost all petroleum production in the country. We're going to become increasingly reliant on solar and wind, which is not very reliable. And then we'll import all of our petroleum for the most part from Russia, which Mm -hmm. that policy that policy trajectory has been in place for basically the better part of 20 years. Um, so yep. they've set them, they have basically boxed themselves into a corner uh, on this. Germany so, perhaps less so, but, but Germany, certainly. All
0: right. So what's happened over the course of I want to make a couple of quick points and then um, talk about what the United States and other its al- allies in Europe have done here. But what's happened um, more recently is as Russia has begun this sort of military buildup leading up to this invasion, the United States practiced something which I've rarely seen before, which is basically it went very public with intelligence. Um, we don't have a way of sort of directly sort of trying to deter the Russians. We didn't send a bunch of soldiers to Ukraine. We didn't fast track Ukraine for NATO membership, which would have been quite aggressive and maybe very escalatory. Instead, we basically said, here's everything we're seeing. Here's what they're doing. And really tried to combat what we saw as one of Russia's biggest tools, which was misinformation. So, ba- So there was lots of times that whether it was Jen Psaki or or, or Joe Biden um, or Anthony Blinken or whoever or or Jake Sullivan, whoever was talking, they were disclosing sort of security briefings. Um, uh, Again, this is American intelligence. They certainly are entitled to do that, but they're basically saying we're going to try and deter Russia by disclosure um, and and sort of hope that by announcing this and by showing Russia that we know what hand they're playing, this will give them pause. I'm not sure that it worked um, but what it probably did was it allowed America's allies in Europe to get coordinated more quickly and so i think th- in in that sense it probably played a good public relations role
1: and in and fact if I was going to get yeah well yeah. and potentially burned um burned up some intelligence sources which
0: it might have it yeah. might have um but uh, no, I don't, I, what um what it what well, i think what it um what it probably did in the in the short term is it meant that america and its allies are winning the public relations battle and it means that we're losing the strategic on the ground conflict um united states doesn't really have a mechanism for stopping russia from invading ukraine this is not a fair fight um if this goes unless for some reason uh Putin gets cold feet about this invasion. Russia can invade Ukraine as much as it wants. Um, they can topple Kiev. They can get rid of the Zelensky government. They do have the military capacity to make that happen. I have heard a lot more debate from American military experts, of which I am not one, uh, about um, whether they can occupy the country or not. I think Matt's correct. I think what uh, Putin's maximalist strategy likely is is, uh, is absorbing Donetsk and Luhansk, these predominantly Russian culturally entities bordering his country and taking those from Ukraine, getting rid of the, the democratically elected Zelensky government in Ukraine and replacing it with a puppet government of Putin's choosing um, and trying to keep uh, Ukraine within Russia's sphere of influence. I don't think he can afford to essentially... Park 150,000 Russian soldiers in Ukraine and make it part of Russia. And I think it is likely that there will be some kind of ongoing anti-Russian resistance inside Ukraine, if he tries to do that, the longer any kind of occupation would occur. So this is, has to be, I think for Putin's sake, this has to be a relatively quick operation. It is also seems to be, and again, I want to put some, some caveats around this, seems to be very unpopular inside the Russian population. As you can imagine, Russian polling is not great. Um, people don't want to speak their minds necessarily about the Putin government. He has been fairly popular up to this point, And the seizure of Crimea was fairly popular at that point, but at least there are public protests in St. Petersburg. There are public protests in Moscow right now against Putin's actions. Now, I, we'll, we, there's a long way to go to see how intense those are, how meaningful those are, but, um, this has not been a popular, um, move for everyone inside Russia. Yeah. And I, I think the sooner he concludes it, the more likely it is to be successful for him.
1: Yeah. And the, and the more destructive it is of, you know, life in Ukraine, the harder it's going to be, um, to sort of, <laughs> to make it all worth it. Right. I mean, so his invasion of Eastern Ukraine, picking off the Eastern two provinces, I mean, these two provinces before he invaded 14 actually became quite prosperous. Um, and we're enjoying a, a pretty high degree of, I mean, pretty much the greatest amount of prosperity that little corner of the world had ever seen, essentially. And basically, he has sort of systematically utterly destroyed the the society and the economy there. And he risks doing something similar in Ukraine if he's not careful. And And yeah, Ukraine is... Is very resource rich in minerals and in its agricultural capacity, um, and it, it's a major, one of the biggest world suppliers of uranium. Right, there's a lot of reasons uh, why Ukraine looks like you know a juicy, um, a juicy nugget. Right, uh, but but he risks sort of destroying this, turning the population in Ukraine against him, and angering his own population, and he mm-hmm. can't really afford that. So I'm trying to sort of think through. You know the long game, how this redounds to his benefit, and um, to me, this seems incredibly risky. Um, I agree. So,
0: so, so, really quickly, um, two quick points: What is the United States doing, along with its European allies? And here, I do, we did sort of blame Germany uh, earlier for how it structured its um, its uh, energy policies uh Germany immediately ended its biggest future uh, uh um uh, oil and gas project with uh, uh with Russia the Nord Stream 2 project so that's taking 8 9 billion dollars out of Russia but in the future right this is not an immediate this is sort of uh canceling future opportunities um also the United States uh Biden spoke earlier today and announced a series of um, freezing of certain Russian banks and Russian assets held by American banks um, and targeted uh, uh, sanctions for um, Russian elites and their families, essentially trying to hurt Putin's inner, inner circle. Um, the notable thing that didn't happen was uh, the United States and the its European allies did not kick Russia out of SWIFT and this is something I'm learning about a little bit here, but SWIFT is a international uh, payments system. Um, and by doing, if we, if we had done that, that would have been very painful for Russia because it would have um, uh, limited the ability of any Russians to conduct financial transactions in Europe um, and elsewhere as well. And, and so um Biden was defensive about this and basically said the sanctions that we have launched are as painful as kicking them out of SWIFT, but certainly kicking them out of SWIFT would have added to the pain, and we, we didn't do that yet. A couple of reasons could be we want to keep some cards back to see um, if it, what, what Putin does now, or it could be that, that kicking them out of SWIFT would have actually been more painful for the West, and we're trying to launch sanctions that hurt Russia more than they hurt us which is also why Russia is going to be continued to allow to sell natural gas to Europe, even though we're sanctioning them in lots of other kinds of ways. So sanctions, yes, full aggressive sanctions, not as aggressive as they could be, and no military action directly in Ukraine, although the United States is moving uh, some of its forces to nearby countries like Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, um, Poland, uh, Romania are all getting an increase in U.S. troops. Um, to dissuade any additional action that that Putin might take. What's going to happen next? Um, I should mention that Ukraine has also asked Turkey to close the Black Sea. Uh, Turkey has the capacity to um, essentially prevent further Russian ships from entering the Black Sea and and, and reinforcing um, the Sevastopol Naval Naval Port. Um, This is a really interesting test. Turkey has been sort of uh, very much aligned with Russia, they're both increasingly authoritarian countries, but Turkey is also a NATO member. And so what Turkey does here might be a really interesting bellwether for whether Russia is way over its skis, and whether Putin is way over his skis, or whether uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan of Turkey is not willing to get on the bad side of Putin uh, by closing the Black Sea to future Russian reinforcements. So I'm watching that very closely. Um, I think that it's possible that Russia could stop short of overthrowing the Ukrainian government. But I think what Matt sketched out is the most likely. uh, Russia conquers Kiev, topples the Zelensky government, seizes those eastern provinces and tries to install a different government in Ukraine. All in the name of of humanitarianism and even as as Putin said, denazification. Right,
1: Which we should point out, uh, even though we try to be cool calm collected objective political scientists on this podcast as much as possible right uh-huh. um we should you know uh maybe pause for half a minute to point out just how um, utterly outrageous that is um absolutely you know uh the idea of like well these are my people so i'm going to launch an invasion and kill them right um because i want to keep them and bring them back into the fold right um is is um is a great evil
0: yeah no i um i think it's worth noting why why this matters so for americans who are sort of getting up to speed on this and saying this seems like a, a squabble between ukraine and russia um no this is worth caring about deeply for a couple of a couple of frames a couple of references if nothing else ukraine is a democracy and a fairly elected democracy, and Russia is an authoritarian government, so this is an authoritarian country uh, seizing unprovoked territory from a democracy. Territorial integrity is the backbone of the international system. this norm which we don 't always respect, and to be clear, the United States did invade Iraq back in two thousand um, and three and Uh, took territorial integrity away from the Iraqi government. I think there are some clear differences here. And so I want to encourage people to avoid whataboutism. Uh, Putin very much would like to make these two things essentially comparable. The United States intervened in Iraq for humanitarian reasons. I'm just doing the same thing in Ukraine. These are not the same. They're not the same kind of thing. Um, Iraq was not a democracy. Um, And uh, whatever specious reasons the United States used to invade Iraq uh putin's claims of of a humanitarian uh relief for genocide are utterly and demonstrably false there are no lingering questions about weapons of mass destruction here um this is uh this is an unprovoked um uh, illegal attack on a a territorially sovereign democracy
1: well and the u.s wasn't trying to make iraq part of the united states either
0: that's true that's true it's
1: also that small fact
0: Um, The other thing I'd point out here is, as of this recording, there has been remarkable bipartisanship on this issue. Uh, Republicans, Democrats alike have been broadly supportive of the Ukrainian people and Ukrainian territorial sovereignty. They have broadly supported uh, the, the President's decisions, Bi- President Biden, that is, decision not to send military forces to Ukraine, uh, but to respond robustly. Now, we know, we're political scientists, we know that can't last, right? Um, the bra- uh, Our system is too polarized for there to be broad bipartisanship perpetually on this issue. But um, B. Be- be mindful when you start to hear criticisms of, about uh, the U.S. response to um, to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and ask what that response is about. I think it's entirely legitimate to criticize the Biden administration for the for the tactics they're taking, for the character um, uh, of, of or the execution of of American policy towards Russia and towards Ukraine. But it's. I think we need to stand up for uh, Ukraine as a democracy and for the liberal world order. And when I say liberal, I don't mean um, progressive here. I mean the system of human rights and, and, and uh, free elections um, amongst uh, the internet, uh, countries in the international system. And um, if we start to hear criticisms of that um, for partisan gains, uh, that's something to really pay attention to in the American system. Last thing I'd say is we're going to see the Biden administration try to carve a fine line between doing too little, which will be seen as appeasement of Putin and maybe embolden him to take future actions, and entanglement, uh, which could escalate a conflict with Russia. This is very dangerous times. This is uh, I, I've seen a lot of people writing in the last... 48 hours about this being the biggest test of the international system since world war II. i I'm not there yet in terms of that. I still feel like that's a little bit of hyperbole, but this does really matter for future American engagement in the international system. This isn't just a regional conflict.
1: It is. I think Oh, go ahead, Mitch.
2: I was going to say just the other thing uh, as well. I'm not sure if you mentioned this already, Chris, but Putin's also, somewhat veiled um threat um basically that anyone who intervenes on behalf of ukraine will face uh i'm going to get the quote slightly off and i have it in front of me but basically will face um um consequences without historical precedent yep. um and you know which i think pretty obviously and easily is read as perhaps indicating um you know a threat of the use of nuclear weapons um, which also is probably um, a major escalation for the world, even beyond, um, you know, things that we've seen in the recent decades.
1: Yeah. And I think, yeah, trying to figure out how to uh, deter and, you know, you know, without unnecessary entanglement and reaping harsh, you know, and, and having that deterrent work um, without the downsides. Right. But I can't help but think of all the instances in, in world history in which we said, oh, this autocrat wouldn't possibly seize this particular country. Putin wouldn't possibly try to take Crimea in the Donbass region. Putin wouldn't possibly um, try to grab all of the Ukraine. Um, what's next? Well, Putin couldn't possibly try to grab um of the baltic states right i mean Mm -hmm. at some point um there's going to have to be a line that's drawn um if putin decides he wants to keep advancing which who knows what his interests are i think i think our sort of western understanding of putin's interests um is not putin's understanding of putin's interest um i think china as well is is observing sort of the western response and that could shape um, future Chinese policy, potentially with Taiwan. Um, so, so there's a lot of reasons to care because the implications ripple out into the future, um, into other areas of the world, in ways that we can't possibly foresee. But strongmen like Putin, Xi Jinping, others they they understand strength, they detect weakness, and they they react accordingly if they think they can seize an advantage. And I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the West would needs to be very careful because we're we're at a we're at an interesting crossroads in history. Um, yep. You know, it, it's interesting, and I'll, I'll just sort of end my my thoughts with this. It's interesting when we got to the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, we had this declaration that we'd reached sort of the end of history, um, and that liberal democracy had won out other over other sorts of forms of government, right over authoritarian systems of various types, right. And it would the '90s, you know, were a great moment, right? Even Russia, as you pointed out, uh, started to modernize and westernize in a variety of ways. But, um, but it's been pretty clear, really, since um, the mid to late, um, um, you know, the first the first decade of the 20th century of the 21st century that that's not the case. China and Russia had um, started moving in a different direction, um, and unfortunately, a lot of Western um, a lot of Western diplomats and a lot of Western leaders um, fail to take that seriously. I recall Barack Obama going after Mitt Romney um, in in the the, the presidential um, campaign, saying that you know Mitt Romney um, and his grave concern about a future Russian Russian threat that Mitt Romney's sort of foreign policy concern was outdated. That the 1980s called, and they want they want this foreign policy back, but. Truly, it's people like Mitt Romney um, who foresaw this threat, um, saw that we need to take Russia seriously, but unfortunately, that's been the minority report, and yep. we are now, I think, reaping some of the consequences of that, and that makes yep. me very sad and very angry.
2: One of the things that I do wonder about, and I, I think, I mean, I think a lot of that is, you know, I agree with a lot of that. I think one thing, though, I guess I'd just want to maybe ask Chris about or qualify or whatever, but it's just, you know, I think a lot of times, I mean, there's this question of like Putin's strength and whether this is an Mm -hmm. act out of strength. And I'm not quite sure about that. I mean, this is Putin, you know, under Putin's watch, Russia's economy has actually declined and they've seen, you know, a reduction of power um, within Russia itself. And so in some ways, this almost seems to be sort of a reaction of weakness, Um, It Mm -hmm. seems like Putin, in in many ways, is facing a declining economy, um, a state with declining power, um, a political hold that seems to also be increasingly tenuous. And, you know, this is essentially, um, you know, a response of a a weakening leader um, to try to actually shore up his weakening position. And I think, you know, Putin's obvious move is to try to project strength. And I think his, you know, his desire is to sort of, you know, act the quote unquote strongman, but it does seem like a lot of the motivation for acting now um, might actually be, you know, the fact that he is feeling the increasing pressures of weakness um, and his own weakness um, um, in this in this moment.
0: I think that's that's a good point. And um I think the way to assess that is to watch Putin moving forward in relation to other world leaders. Um, China I'll start with China just really quickly. China has long had as a core principle of its foreign policy, non-interventionism. They're respecting the territorial integrity of sovereign states. They don't want people on their territory and they don't want people on other people's territory. You China's in an interesting position here as a as a power that builds itself as a rising world power. Do they defend t- Ukraine's territorial integrity and side with the West? Or do they side with another autocrat and essentially quietly, tacitly accept what Russia is doing here? I think. Putin is operating with an advantage. He has an advantage over Ukraine, and he's banking that that short-term advantage can be exploited without a lot of long-term costs. What the United States and Europe are proposing are essentially long-term pain in response to short-term inefficacy. And the question is, are we resolved enough to do that? Um, will Germany continue to cancel the Nord Stream 2 project? Will the European countries be willing to long-term punish Putin and truly make him a pariah, as Joe Biden said in his speech today? Or after a few years of being aggrieved about this, will they sort of slide back into economic uh, uh, economic exchange and intercourse with, with the Russians? That will really determine whether this was a long-term uh, benefit or cost uh, for Putin and his regime guys, we got to go. Um, there's a lot more we could talk about, and we may have to come back to this again. Um, uh, obviously, I don't think, it, don't think it bears saying that um, if you're listening to this podcast, you know that we're uh, uh, believers as well as political scientists. Uh, keep praying for uh, what's happening in Ukraine. Keep praying for um, our brothers and sisters there and for peace um, to prevail. Thanks for listening to us. We'll be back in your feed really soon. Uh, this has been Election Shock Therapy. Thanks for listening and go where else.